0: Welcome to The Jay Davis Show. Today, I'll be co-hosting with my friend Jess Larson. Jess, do you want to kick us off? Today on the show, we've got Ben Capel, partner at Peterson Ventures. Thanks for making
1: time. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So for people who aren't familiar with your VC firm, can you talk about your mandate or what you guys focus on?
1: Yep. So we are a pre-seed and seed stage fund based in Salt Lake City, Utah. And we invest in companies here in Utah. We So in, probably the best way to describe it is we think about sourcing deals from three main sources. So we're investing in companies here in Utah where we're based, ecosystem we're very excited about and have had an opportunity to invest in some great companies here locally. Our founding partner, Joel Peterson, has been a professor at Stanford Business School for going on 27 years now. And so the exposure that he's had to companies and entrepreneurs at Stanford Business School has been really valuable for us. We've invested in a lot of companies founded by Stanford Business School students over the years and we'll continue to do that. And then at this point, we've made, you know, close to 70 investments out of the seed seed stage fund. And and we've been fortunate to have a lot of our CEOs refer deals to us. And so that's been a great flywheel effect for us. And then the the third part, so so pre-seed and seed stage fund deals out of of Utah, Stanford, GSP, and then referrals from our CEOs and broader network. And then we invest in a lot of, in terms of industries, we invest in a lot of industries over the years. We tend to be most focused on software as a service, which as many people know, is kind of the bread and butter of Utah and then digital commerce. So we've been fortunate to be investors in some digitally native brand businesses like Bonobos and Allbirds. And the opportunity to invest in those businesses has been a great learning experience for us. And it's introduced and opened a lot of doors for us. So that's how I would describe Peterson Ventures.
2: can you. Give us some history of your career and how you got into Peterson.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Out of undergrad, I joined a consulting firm. So I was in consulting for about four years, really enjoyed consulting, enjoyed the opportunity to work with a lot of different companies and and get exposure to a lot of different business models. But the piece that I missed in consulting was the opportunity to kind of get my hands dirty and work on the execution of those principles. After that, I had an opportunity to join an early stage technology startup. So I, I joined, essentially was the first employee hired there, worked with the the founders And this was a business, the product hadn't been built yet. We were still figuring out exactly what the product was going to look like, how to go to market. That was a phenomenal experience for me. I I really, really enjoyed it. It was challenging. It was really hard. But I learned that I loved early stage businesses. I had then the opportunity to come to Peterson. And the opportunity at Peterson was interesting for me because I looked at investing as an opportunity to combine my consulting experience where you're working and advising with a lot of different companies, but also be involved with early stage businesses that have their own unique challenges and problems. And just found that investing was a was a really interesting mix of the two. The opportunity to work with all these businesses, help them think about where they wanted to go from here. But when you make an investment, very different than a consulting engagement. In that post investment, we're involved with the business. We're going to work with them, and in these relationships are you know they they can be ten years or more. And so, really enjoyed the opportunity to be part of the 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 story for these companies, and and hopefully be value add along the way.
0: It's such an interesting game, you know, it's exciting, gets a lot of press, you know, nationally and it's cool to be a it's cool to be a, a startup guy nowadays compared to yeah. 15 years ago, right? The age or of the entrepreneur. years ago right? Yeah. But it's, it's got its challenges, right? And there's a lot of assumptions sometimes about the best product wins, right? If you have a good enough product, that's all you need and stuff like that. You know, as part of the mini series where we're asking all these different experts, what do you see work when somebody has a good enough product, but now you need people to find out about it? Yeah. What are some things that you've seen work for, whether it's portfolio companies or just your own observations?
1: So good question. So maybe let me comment a little bit on the first thing you said about, I do think it is the age of the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur is kind of glorified right now. And, and rightfully so in the sense that I think some pretty phenomenal businesses have been created as technology businesses that are some of the biggest companies in the world now, clearly. But entrepreneurship is not easy and it's not for everybody. And I, I think that's Part of our job as investors is to sort of sort through, hey, are, are you really up for this challenge that you're about to take on? Because it, it isn't easy. You know, one of my mentors and founders who's an entrepreneur himself, as I sort of went through my own journey about, even, even here at Peterson Ventures, as we've grown this business and, and has been a bit of an entrepreneurial environment here as well, he said, look, you, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to think about it. And, and you have to think through, would you feel like you were missing an appendage if you don't go do this, because if you don't feel that strongly about it, it's going to be harder than you think. It's going to take longer than you think. And you may not have the sort of grit or willingness to stick through those times. And I think that's important. It gets lost a little bit as we're sort of glorifying the entrepreneur of, what it actually means to start a business from scratch and to grow it to something big and meaningful and and of size. So I thought I'd just comment on that real quickly because I I think it's actually important. And to your second part of the question around what actually works, you know, I would say product is really important. I think I've seen both sides of the equation here. I've seen where people build a really compelling sales team and the sales team can do a good job presenting to the potential customer what the product could do. And in that instance, we've seen a couple of examples of what I would say is not product market fit, fit with potential of the product. And that can be challenging as well. You can go both sides of this equation where you focus too much on sales. Flip side is if you spend too much time on product, you can then find yourself in a place where you're building a solution that people don't wanna buy. And especially in the early stages and the seed stages where we're focused on, we find it absolutely critical that you have to be doing both of these at the same time. And and look, I, I think the work that that Eric Reese and others have done with Lean Startup, I think has helped make this this concept popular and understandable. So it's still a high-level answer to your question, but I think really important that that both matter. You can't just do sales. You can't just do product. You have to do them both at the same time to really understand, are you building something people want to buy? Yeah,
2: I think I've seen this. I'm sure a lot of people who've been in the entrepreneurship world have seen that challenge of a lot of times, especially younger entrepreneurs, I think have that view of there's got to be a silver bullet and they're looking for that silver bullet of what's going to solve my problems. How do you help portfolio companies to balance that and to really develop those? I almost view it as like you know two muscles where if you work out one too much, then the other one is too weak. How do you help them have that balance of Okay, we need to do product development, but we also need to get out there. Because I think, like you said, a lot of companies die of one or the other. They're just in their own little world building their product, and no one knows about them. Or they're out selling something, and the product really isn't keeping up. How do you help people to to have that
1: perspective? So... I I think it's actually really critical how you put together your team. So as seed stage investors, team is such a critical part. I mean, essentially that's what we're investing in. And, and so putting the team together in a way that you're balancing those two needs of the business is really important. So somebody who from a product standpoint in, in. this is where I think the role of product really matters. So a true product leader is not only thinking about what product is that you need to build, but is also thinking about what the customer wants to buy. And so we look for that. Do you have a strong product leader in the business? And sometimes that's going to be the CEO. And if it's not the CEO in an early stage company, we need to know that that, that person is on the team. So if you're too engineering heavy on your team, that's... That could be a problem because you're going to be more focused on writing the code and building product. Flip side is if you're too sales heavy, if you, you're going to you're going to fall into that trap. So we think teams critical at, at the early stages in terms of your ability to balance those two, and and a really good product leader who understands best practices around product, product development, product research is going to be really important in that stage from our perspective. So
0: thinking about that, if somebody's listening and they're saying okay, we know that we know the product, Yep. right? And they're saying, now we probably do need to get more people to find out about it. Any, any stories that you've, you can tell us about, oh, we had this, you know, at this portfolio company of ours, these guys make this, and then here's how they got, here's, here's their go-to market that actually worked or something.
1: Yeah, so, so lots of opportunities and examples. I, I think one that comes to mind is, so we're investors in, in a company here locally in Utah called Chatbooks. So when Chatbooks came to market, so originally we, we invested pretty early with Chatbooks prior to them coming up with a product today that is Chatbooks. And in that process, in that kind of product market fit phase, one of the ideas was originally the product was taking your photos and help you to organize the digital photos that you take. And a lot of requests were coming back from customers saying, but I'm also still interested in the tangible and I don't have that opportunity to look at my photos. They're just, once I take them, they're on my phone or they're on my computer, I don't look at them. Can you help me find a way to print them? And so that through that journey, there was this conversation around how do we do that in a way that's scalable? Can we ask them to share photos? Can we create our own place for them to do that? And, and we sort of came back to this, I think, really key takeaway and give a lot of credit to the team here, which was go to where the customers already are, which for them meant Instagram. Give customers an opportunity to print their Instagram where they're already curating their photos, they're commenting on it. And what happened there, and we think this is really critical, is that the viral component was astounding. So people would have signed up for this, they would order, they would get the books, they would immediately take a picture of it and share it. And so now you have this situation where you didn't have to do marketing. And, and we think this is actually really critical in the early stages of a business to see viral uptick, because that means you've really found product market fit. If people like it so much, they're sharing it. But it was so important to with a consumer business to get to where customers already were and then give them something additional. Looking back, you know, one of those decisions you make in a company, you're not sure whether it's going to work or not and how important that was to the early stages of, of chatbooks. You know, I, I think the other piece is an, another example for us is Allbirds. So we were invested in Allbirds early on. So pre-release of the product. And for people who aren't yeah. familiar,
0: give people the quick elevator pitch.
1: So Allbirds is lifestyle footwear brand. All the the shoes are made out of sustainable materials. So their first shoe was made out of merino wool. They've now made a shoe out of eucalyptus tree. And we'll continue to make more shoes and more products out of sustainable materials. What was interesting for us as we looked at that deal was one, it was was truly differentiated. So nobody was making shoes out of merino wool. And there was a big bet as to whether or not people were going to want to wear shoes out of merino wool. But there was this brand promise from the beginning that was really around simplicity of design comfort and then sustainable materials what what's interesting about that each one of those elements matters if the the value prop around comfort didn't resonate so strongly with consumers then simplicity of design and sustainability wouldn't matter nearly as much if you build just around sustainability of materials but the shoe's not comfortable i think that you know that's not going to resonate as much with consumers so we 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 i think it's really important that you really land on what is the brand promise and and what are what are customer what do customers expect and can you deliver on it if you can deliver on it then you will have your customers will become your best sales force you know all, all the times we talk to people about allbirds they'll come to us or they'll one of the things i hear all the time is those guys owe me money because they'll say i've sold 10 pairs of those shoes. And that's great. That's exactly what we want to hear. Because what that means is once again, you have product market fit, but you're also delivering on that that brand promise. And and you know, when the New York Times came out and labeled Albert's as the most comfortable shoe in the world with the headline, Alberts wasn't branding themselves the most comfortable shoe in the world before that, but they grabbed that, obviously. But what's interesting is it it resonates. You know, that's the experience the customers have when they try it on. I got to go try those shoes on.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought up chat books. So we had Nate, the CEO on the show. And it was fun to hear, you know, get a lot of details about because he's, you know, he's pretty transparent about the stumbles. And yeah, you know, he'd had his previous exit. So he thought he knew everything. And then, you know, real data showed him that his original premise needed a pivot, right? So those guys, they get their viral coefficient. Their customers are talking about it. They're posting pictures about a book of pictures. <laughs> it's yeah. catching on, right? Yeah. And then, because I think when he came on, they had maybe a million and a half books sold or two million books sold around there. And they had, I think they had just doubled down, kind of related to Jay's world, on their own kind of Dollar Shave Club style video, you know, that got... however many millions of views and stuff, are they coming to you and talking to you about decisions like a big investment in a campaign like that of, hey, we think we found the product market fit. We're getting that viral coefficient. Now we want to pour some gas on this fire. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Big, big topic of discussion. I mean, some of those long form videos are, they're expensive to produce. And if you don't put the money into those videos after production and release, then you're not gonna get your money out of the upfront investment. So yeah, it's a a big topic of conversation. I I think the learning there, the first video that we did at Chatbooks was tremendous success. And one of the things that we found is people, in the viral element was so strong, people were sharing as we discussed they'd they'd get their books they'd take pictures they'd post it you'd see in the comments where did you get those books that's really interesting but what we were finding is that people were still not quite sure how to use the product and what it was like print your instagram what does that mean how do i do that and so that first video that they created really was around how do we educate the consumer on what what this is and why is it so helpful for you and so you know, the chatbooks mom did a great job of saying, hey, look, I'm busy. I have a million things going on. And uh, I would love to create memories, capture these memories. I don't know how to do it. But here's chatbooks, who's given me this great opportunity. And guess what, I don't need to do anything that I'm not already doing. I just, I'm already posting to Instagram, I just sign up for chatbooks, and I get these books. It's great. That was incredibly helpful. I think between when we did that And when we did the second video, one of the things that we learned was Facebook started deprioritizing long form video, really having an understanding of, of these platforms that you're using and what's happening behind the scenes that you always always have insight into. Cause at the time, the first video, Facebook was, was prioritizing long, long form video because it increased the amount of time people were spending on Facebook. By the time we did the second video, they were looking at, yeah, it was, it was the opposite. Is they were deprioritizing long form video they wanted really short quick hit videos and if anything was too long they weren't surfacing it as much in people's feeds that hurt us but we didn't know that you know so it was challenging because we had put the money the time and the energy into creating that video big learning there is you, you need to know wh- whichever platform you're working off of whether it's facebook or if it's on the B2B side, if you're on LinkedIn, you need to understand what levers they're pulling behind the scenes. And that, that's not always accessible. And I think that's where a good agency can help you or if you can get the attention of the folks at those places, if you can get the Facebook or the LinkedIn to spend some time with you, that will really help.
0: When you have these portfolio companies that are so excited and they've got this great idea of how they're gonna do it, how do you gently help them recognize, hey, we may need some additional expertise for that strategy?
1: It's a great question. I, I think in general, one of the hardest things with startups is the pace. Is the pace. One way of answering that question is I, I get a lot of people coming to me and saying, "Hey, I have an opportunity to go work at this early stage startup. What do you think about it?" And their concern is always, "What if the company doesn't work?" And I've learned that's the wrong concern. The, the concern that people should have is, "Will a company outgrow you?" And not will, but when and how fast. And so, what companies. Early days, you need a bunch of people who can do a lot of things. As a company grows, you need to start bringing people into the company who aren't necessarily learning on the job. Startups, there's not a lot of room to learn on the job. You don't have formal training programs in place. You can't hide anywhere. You know, everybody needs to be pulling their weight or it becomes pretty obvious pretty fast if you're not. And so one of the things that we as investors, board members, advisors, that I think is really important for companies is to help to identify where you need more expertise than you currently have on the team. And then the question is, do you rent it or do you buy it? So in the case of marketing, do you need an agency to help you figure out your strategy? which might be the right first step, but ultimately you're gonna need that core competency in-house. So really trying to understand what the company needs and then how to fill those roles is really important. And, and, and I think that's where advisors can really help because sometimes when you're in the weeds, it's, it is a little bit hard to see the forest from the trees. I think the second thing is, you know, it's tough because you will work with people who will help you get to a certain place. And you feel a ton of loyalty to them for helping you get there. And then it, it, you might realize with the help of some advisors or others that what got you here is not gonna get you there. And you you have to start thinking like, okay, what do we need to get us there? That's the goal. And sometimes that means different people. Sometimes it means bringing on help from the outside in terms of an agency or a consultant. But that is such a cr- critical part for how a startup grows. And such a critical part of a leader and a CEO that often gets underestimated, but is so important to to the success of the business, both in the short-term and long-term.
2: As you're helping people through those challenges, what have you seen is effective in working with founders who are going through these growth pains? Is it, I don't know if there's anything that you've found that's most helpful. I'm sure a lot of times you probably feel more like a psychiatrist than maybe an investor. (laughs) What are some of those lessons that you've learned as you've coached these people through really tough problems?
1: I have been called a counselor without a copay. I, that has been said before. I think that actually is part of the role as an advisor, and it's one that we take pretty seriously. I think as er, really early stage investors, you know, we're not that far removed from the common shares and the and the the founders of the business in terms of when we came into the business. And so what that does is it gives us a lot of context on the company, where it came from, you know, the ups and downs over the years, and allows us to, I think, be helpful in some of these situations. And so in terms of, uh, so I think one is just having the relationship is really important. So when we go to a founder and we have this conversation, we say, look, just ask the questions. How do you feel like things are going in marketing? Are you getting what you need out of your marketing team? If not, why? if yes, great. What does that look like? Where are you going from here? If you know, what are you missing? And then what would it look like if you could, if you could paint the picture yourself to try to help the founders start to think through this for themselves by hopefully asking the right questions. I think the second piece is what we've noticed is when you go do get the talent that you need, it could be somewhere else. So you might go hire a new head of customer success, does an incredible job. And all of a sudden you realize, well, we might need to upgrade another somewhere else on the team because. This person is clearly pulling more weight than, than other people on the team. And so what, what we found is it's important, one, to be asking the right questions, and then two, as you up-level your team, you'll start to realize, hey, we need to make other changes as well. And you know, I want to circle back to something that I think is really important, sort of a general principle that, that one of my mentors told me at one point, which is actually true. Usually what's in the best interest of the individual is often in the best interest of the company. It actually doesn't help to keep somebody in a role that isn't necessarily qualified for it. And sometimes it's hard to do that because these are hard conversations. They're hard discussions. You've been effectively to war with these people. And now you may need to make some changes. But those people are so much better positioned to go do their next thing. And maybe there is a path for them to get a coach or to get an advisor to help them grow and, and sort of grow into that role. But finding the right opportunity in recognizing that what's ultimately in the best interest of the individual is often what's interest, best interest of the company.
2: Along with that, I think, as you've talked about, entrepreneurship is such a challenging process. How do you help people, maybe someone who's listening, who's considering like, oh, I want to go start you know, a business. I've, I've had some good experience. I have this idea I'm passionate about. Is there something I think your, your appendage analogy is really helpful? Like if you feel that passionate, what other things have you seen are helpful for people who are trying to make that decision? Maybe I should go out on my own and do something that helps guide them through that.
1: I think one of the things we look for is we look for a team that is uniquely positioned to solve a problem, partly because they have a unique understanding of the problem and what the solution could be if there is an easy solution to a problem, then it's probably not that big of an opportunity, right? It's gonna be hard to solve it, otherwise it would have already been solved. And so what that means is you need to have some insight into a problem to be solved. And I I think a lot of times, this is where we get back to the conversation around glorifying entrepreneurship, which once again, well-deserved in many instances, but but being careful to say, wanna be an entrepreneur, for entrepreneur's sake. That is when you get into creating a solution there may not be a problem for, right? And I think it's really important to take a good hard look at what problem are we solving and why are we uniquely positioned to solve this problem? And so oftentimes when, when we see entrepreneurs go from one industry to a completely different industry, we just, not that we won't invest in that opportunity, but we wanna have a really good understanding as to why are you moving into this industry what about you and your background enables you to solve that problem so i think i think that's a really important piece it's not entrepreneurship for entrepreneurship's sake there's got to be a problem that you have a unique insight into a solution that you can you can uniquely go after.
2: I always joke with people that then when people are like, well, I just don't want to have a boss anymore. It's like, then you don't understand entrepreneurship because you're going to have the most demanding bosses you've ever had in your life. Investors and clients and customers. Employees. Employees. But I, are, I think
1: that's one of the biggest, the hardest things is like you, you now have. So all those things you're frustrated with about your boss, guess what? Those people are going to be frustrated with you. And if you don't (laughs) realize that you will soon. And so now you have the other problem is how do I manage that? And I think everyone thinks, so I like all culturally, I'll do a better job, all those things, but you will have more weight on your shoulders. You have more responsibility. And once again, you have to really want it because it'll be sleepless nights. It'll be all these people are dependent on you to make payroll, not just those people, but their families. You be careful because you may wish for the day when you had a boss. And somebody else had that responsibility. So yeah, it's got to be more than that. As you're
2: looking at these teams and you're thinking back on different portfolio companies that you guys have had, do you see any commonalities between the teams, whether from a skill set level or just what really makes a great team and how to develop that kind of team unity, build that culture of working as a team?
1: First and foremost, is going to start with the founding management team. And and, and, and we look for a couple of things. There's a lot of things to focus on. But when we look at founding CEOs and and management teams, the CEO has to be able to do a couple of things. So one is, if you're going to pursue venture style growth, that's going to require you to raise venture capital dollars, hire a top shelf team. To execute on that, you have to be able to go out and one, you have to have a vision for what you want to accomplish, and that vision has to have r- real impact. It has to be an opportunity to build a really sizable business, which means you have to have a problem that's big that you understand and that you have a really good insight in how to solve. The reason you have to do that is you have to go out, you have to convince people to give you money that probably shouldn't give you money. I mean, you're you know, you have an idea, maybe you've built some element of product, you might even have some sales, but still, like. You have to go convince people to to invest in you as an entrepreneur first and foremost and then this idea and concept that, that you're building. The second thing is you have to go get those people to come work for you and probably take less money. And it's because of the vision that you're trying to execute on. It's because of what you think the opportunity is here. So you have to be able to raise capital. You have to be able to recruit. And then what's tricky about it is you also have to be able to make management decisions, decide on what priorities you're going to go after and which ones you're not, which is sometimes the most important decisions you make. And so the founding team is the key for us. And, and then I think it's how do you balance out that founding team? So we talked before about if you as a founder, you're sales oriented, you better find a really competent product oriented co-founder who can really help balance that out so you don't get overweighted to one area. So we we look for that in the in the team, do you have that counterbalance? And then as you grow your business, you start to figure out how do you divide up responsibilities? Cuz in the beginning, you're kind of going to all be doing everything, and as you grow, you have to start figuring out who's going to be doing what and how do you how do you manage that? Then you start bringing in, then you get to the next phase and you have to go recruit people who are probably, you know, the beginning, you might be the best person at everything in the company. You might do everything better than maybe anybody else who's there. You have to go get people who are going to be, and they should be significantly better than you at marketing. They should be significantly better than you at customer service, customer success, and you have to let them do their jobs. And so that sort of transition, it's not easy. Not everybody can do it, but it's got to happen to, to be successful. I love it.
0: I think about running a fund and the, all the kind of questions that I got from people. And very often I'm thinking to myself, that's not the question you should be asking. You know, I, I'm just guessing you've had some similar experiences. In your world, what are some of the questions you think people should be asking that maybe they're not? What's a soapbox for you? What's something you like to talk about that maybe people aren't always asking you about?
1: I would say certainly one of the things that I like to talk about that people don't always ask about or maybe undervalue, and I think less so today, I used to say that it was a competitive advantage and maybe I'll make some people upset with this, but I used to say it's a competitive advantage in venture just to not not be a jerk. I think that's changed. I think that now venture investors realize, look, we, we have to be partners with entrepreneurs. And you've had a lot of entrepreneurs who now come, become investors and have said, I want to do this different than the interactions that I had when I was raising capital. And I think in general, that's good. Three values for us that are really important. One is respect. So just respect what it means to be an entrepreneur because as we've talked about, it's hard. And the other piece that sometimes I can't think gets overlooked is just there. there's some luck involved with companies that are successful. You look, you see it all over the place. There are people, founders who started one business and was a massive failure, if you use that term, then start another business is incredible success and they get a ton of credit for this successful business. And they had to have done a lot of things right for it to be successful. But also there were some market tailwinds that drove that success. And I think that's really important. So for us, we take the long game of, we're gonna develop relationships with our entrepreneurs and not all of them, it's not always gonna work, but, but that's the benefit of a fund is we're gonna have some that don't, some that do. And, and we hope to build long-term relationships with the entrepreneurs that we back, whether it works or not. And we hope that we're gonna be supportive in that process and let's take some learnings, regardless of whether it works or doesn't work, let's take the learnings out of that and think about how we apply it both to how we invest and hopefully the entrepreneur applies it to what they think about next steps are for them in their career or their life. Trust is another thing. So we talk about these tough decisions and, and there are tough decisions for entrepreneurs to make. And we try to look at everything through the prism of what is in the best interest of the company. And if we can make decisions with that prism, not what's in the best interest of us as an investor, not even necessarily what might be in the best interests of you as the, as the CEO, But what is in the best interest of the company? And if we can build a relationship of trust with our CEOs and those that we work with, where they trust that we are looking at it, every decision is being looked at through that prism, then it's a lot easier to have these conversations that might be tough conversations. Are we doing the right thing? Do we have the right people in the right seats? So, So trust is really important to us. And then I think the third piece is partnership you know, we view as once again, as as I mentioned earlier, going in as early as we do, we view this as a true form of partnership. We have companies we've been invested in for 10, 11 years. And you know, that's a long time. And so it's important that we start the relationship in the form of partnership, which means that's how we approach putting a deal together. It's how we approach all of those early conversations because we know this is a long-term game. And, and it might be we back that, that CEO for 10 years, they turn around and start another business, we back them again for 10 years. So it might be a 20 year relationship for us. And we want to respect the entrepreneur, what it means to be an entrepreneur. We want to develop that relationship of trust such that we can have that form of partnership. And and I know some some LPs and some investors ask this question, but is I think it's a good question to ask if you do a reference calls on investors who's the first call that you make? And we want to be that first call because we we want to know whether Things are going good or things are going bad because if we don't know when things are going bad, we can't help. But if we don't have that level of respect and trust in place, then it's going to be a lot harder for those CEOs to make that call when things aren't going as well as they would like. But if they do that and we can respond appropriately in those situations, then we can start to work through those situations and hopefully get back to where things are going well. So I think for us, if you were to say, what's the soapbox? That's that's my soapbox which means sometimes there's a sacrifice of time that is required in order to, to really execute on that plan. But that's one that, that I believe in. And it's one that we look at and say, what kind of investor would I, I want to have? And then can we be that kind of investor?
2: That's awesome. I think that's definitely something that a lot of investors or just in business in general, people forget that a lot of these relationships are decades long and you want to you want to treat people that way as you're looking to build these kind of partnerships with the different entrepreneurs entrepreneurs that you guys are backing what is it that you feel really solidifies that relationship is it being an advisor is it telling them things maybe they they don't want to hear but need to hear like what allows you to build that partnership if you're saying hey, here's some hard, not hard, but here's some like actionable things you can do in your life for people who may not be running a fund, but who are in the business world. What are some actionable things people can be doing to be better partners and develop those partnerships?
1: i think the first thing is to recognize that being a ceo and we talked about this you say you don't you know if you want to be an entrepreneur because you don't want a boss it's, that's the exact wrong reason to do it because being a ceo is actually pretty lonely there are certain things that as the ceo you have to handle those and manage them and there are some topics and conversations and decisions that they're going to sit with you so for this role in particular i think for us we think about it as if, if we can be a partner to the CEO on those decisions where they feel alone, which there are a lot of them, that we can be a partner in that conversation. And if they don't know the answer, they don't feel judged like, well, oh, maybe my investor is going to think I'm not the right CEO for this business. Um, and, and there are situations where that's going to be the case. We're, 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 we're going to decide that maybe we need to to make a change at CEO. But hopefully we're doing that once again with the prism of, what's in the best interest of the business and then in a way that we have a relationship and there's a conversation with the CEO that that they know and understand we're looking at it, the problem or the situation from that prism but for us in this role I think that's a big part of it is knowing that we recognize that lots of stuff backs up to you and there's no one else to turn it over to there's a bunch of stuff you can turn over if we can be a partner for you in those situations when you don't have all the answers I think that's that's where we can develop a solidified relationship partnership.
0: I love it. What's the best way people want to connect with you guys? Is it reaching out on the Peterson Ventures website or social or what's best?
1: All of the above. So reach out through the website, reach out on LinkedIn. Happy to connect there and social as well. So petersonpartners.com website, find us there and Bingus would be happy to chat. The way we look at it is, look, as mentioned, we invest in a lot of SaaS businesses, a lot of digital commerce companies. Those are two very broad categories. A lot fits under that. But more than anything else, if you think you've identified a problem and you think you're the right team to go after it, and you think what we've done in the areas we've invested in the past, we can be helpful to you, we'd love to talk. Thanks for making time for this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much for listening today to The Jay Davis Show. We'll catch you next time.